Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we do thank you just for uh, this day. Lord, I know uh, it's a bit more a challenging day for people to get out and come to church. Lord, we lost an hour last night, and now uh, the weather is not real conducive. Uh, But Lord, we thank you that, again, we still have the privilege of meeting together, looking into your word. Um, considering these principles of spiritual growth. And Lord, I just pray that you would guide and direct in our time together this morning. Lord, that you would just let me be an instrument used by you. Lord, that I would not speak anything that is not truth. Uh, But Lord, that I would just uh, be used by you to set forth these principles that are so significant in our spiritual development. So, Lord, now we do just commit this time to you. First, in the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, we're on chapter 9, consecration. And, of course, you know, chapter 9, um, well, it flows after chapter 8, but chapter 8, I think, is pretty significant in... Uh, setting the stage for for chapter 9. Uh, because in chapter 8, we did spend our time looking at the whole issue of identification. Identification having to do with the fact that you and I were identified with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And as a result, we now share in his new resurrected life. That is our source of everything. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. You know, we are new creations. But it is because of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because of that new life. And that new life is what's going to come into play very much in this chapter. Because we're going to see that all too often in in Christian circles, what we find are people uh, very sincerely trying to consecrate their old Adamic life to serve God. And it is all for naught. And God does not want us to consecrate that old uh, life to Him. He wants us uh, to consecrate our new life that new life we have in Christ to him for his service. You know, I've said it several times before, but in Christian circles we hear all the time, God wants you to give your life to him. And I said, no, he doesn't. Your, your life stinks. He doesn't want it. He wants you to accept his life. He wants you to embrace it. You know, he wants you to leave who you are and what you are apart from him there at the cross. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want to patch it up. He doesn't want to, you know, use it. He wants you to come to him as the new creations you are in Christ. And that's what this chapter will uh, be focusing on uh, this week. Now, it opens up. And he points out, he said, it might be good to stress several points just here. Number one, 
Never was a believer brought to healthy spiritual maturity by means of pressure meetings and constant exhortation before he was prepared by the Spirit. You cannot force believers to grow. You can, you know, you can pressure and pressure and pressure and it will not bring about healthy growth. We are his workmanship. And until the Holy Spirit has brought each of us to a point of being ready to embrace all that we are and have in Christ, uh, we aren't going to have a healthy movement forward. And yet, uh, today, there's going to be a lot of uh, services where there's this pressure on people to grow, to do this, to do that. And he's saying, you'll never achieve healthy growth in that way. And I, I uh, agree with him. Secondly, healthy progress is based on the apprehension, understanding, and appropriation of the truths that make for real growth. Any real positive progress in our Christian life is going to come as we begin to to grab hold of and understand and appropriate those things that are ours in Christ. Uh, We've... I talked before about appropriation. And uh, you cannot appropriate what you don't know you have. And so, you know, uh, we're told in Scripture that we are complete in Christ. We're told that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. We're told by Peter that we have everything necessary for life and godliness. But any real progress is going to come when we begin to understand and take hold of these truths. Truths that have to do with the new man that we have in Christ. In fact, everything really in the the New Testament about Christian conduct... You know, how we are to live, how we are to serve. It's all based upon who we are in Christ. It's not based upon the old man. And yet, all too often, there is this effort to look at the passages on Christian conduct and make the old man look like that. And that... Largely is why Christians so oftentimes are viewed by the world as hypocrites. And in reality, that's, that's an accurate statement. Because the term hypocrite came out of the Greek theater. It was an actor who put on a mask and played a part. And if the old man is simply trying to put on a mask and play the part of being a mature Christian, it's hypocrisy. Because it's not real. 
And that's the problem oftentimes. The world can tell the difference between a real thing. And a lot of it is that the old man, he might can fake it under certain situations. But sooner or later, he shows his true colors. And so, for us to really grow, for us to really mature, for us to really reach our potential, we have got to come to understand who we are and what we have in Christ and appropriate those truths. Thirdly, he says, the experiential aspect of all truth, and especially the so-called deeper truth, is closed to all but the needy heart. And we've seen in an earlier chapter how important needs are in our lives. We're never going to really move forward in our Christian life till we come to see our desperate need of, of Christ for our life. We didn't get saved until we saw our desperate need of a Savior. We won't move forward in our Christian life until we see our desperate need of Christ as our source. As long as our old Adamic nature thinks that it can, that it can do it, we'll keep trying. And for some, they'll spend 20, 30, 40, 50 years Trying to produce it themselves. And that's why God has got to bring us, and and this is where, I think it was in chapter 3, he talked about what an important tool failure is. Again, it was failure that brought Paul to his Romans 7 exclamation, the good I want to do, I can't do, and the evil I don't want to do, I, I can't avoid. Oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me? It was his failure at trying to live the Christian life that brought him to the place of saying, God, I need provision for my life. And the answer was, Thanks be unto God through Jesus Christ. So he says, until one is aware of the need to progress spiritually, he will never be brought beyond the birth truths, a mere babe in Christ. And, you know, again, we've got to see the need to grow spiritually. If we think that salvation is all that it's about... That, you know, I'm saved, I've, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to heaven when I die. Now, I'm just going to do my best. If that's our view, we're never really going to move forward. We've got to be aware of our need for spiritual development. And so... You know, he quotes from Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1 from the Amplified Version. 
Therefore, let us go on and get past the elementary stage in uh, teachings and doctrine of Christ the Messiah, advancing steadily towards completeness and perfection that belongs to spiritual maturity. Let us not again be laying the foundation of repentance and abandonment of dead works or dead formalism and of the faith by which you turned to God. And so the writer of Hebrews exhorts us, we need to move forward. We need to go beyond those basic truths that brought us into the realm of salvation. Now today we get into this subject of consecration and he he says the subject of consecration seems to be badly misunderstood by so many believers. Many, especially those young in the Lord, have been victimized time and again in this matter of surrender or commitment. Here in the South, a lot of times it's been dedication, uh, The bludgeon most commonly used is the Lord Jesus gave his all for you. Now the least you can do is give your all for him. And he says, you know, the believer is pressured to consecrate, surrender, commit his life to Christ on the basis of his love and gratitude for what has been done on his behalf in Calvary. How often the average congregation is put through this routine. How often the individual believer is maneuvered down front to consecrate, reconsecrate, uh, surrender, resurrender, commit and recommit himself to Christ. Why is it that after a while believers come to dread such meetings and messages? Well, there's a number of reasons for all this frustration, floundering, and failure. And praise the Lord, there are scriptural answers available to all who need and want them. Now, you know, in reading this, it took me back to, I guess, my youth. Um, Back when I was growing up, Youth for Christ was big in in the area here. And back then, they still had their um, big uh, gatherings. Uh, later, it it kind of changed its whole dynamic. But back then, they had their weekly uh, get-togethers of of uh, Christian. Uh, young people from all over the area. We uh, used to, every Saturday night, we met at the old King, uh, King Edwards Hotel in their banquet room. And, you know, I, uh, I, I'll say, you know, Youth for Christ met a real need in my life at that point in time. And so I'm not intending to be negative about uh, youth for Christ. I'm just going to share kind of my experience uh, at, at times. And you know, like he described here, you know, we would have, they would have speakers come in. And, you know, some were better than others, but, you know, and, and every week there was an altar call for those who wanted to be saved, but periodically there would be these messages on dedication. And, you know, the, uh, that we, and basically they were, uh, uh, followed the argument he has here. You know, Christ gave himself 
his all for you. So shouldn't you be willing to give yourself for him? And so they'd have the altar call and, and, you know, a large group of people would go to the front. And I would join them at times, not realizing that in reality what I was doing, I was pulling the old man off the cross. And I was walking that old man to the front and saying, I want to dedicate myself to, to serving the Lord. Now, I'll say, on occasion that was sincere. On other occasions, I just didn't want to be the last person sitting in the auditorium that didn't walk to the front. Now, I can't speak about the motivation of other people. I don't know. I can't know their hearts. But I do know that this chapter is very accurate when it comes to me. That... You know, I really did not understand my new life in Christ. Can't say that I wasn't taught that growing up. I don't remember that. But as we've seen as we go through this book, until a certain level of need brings you to the point, even if you've heard it, most of the time it doesn't register. It's only when we're brought to a place of need that we really begin to understand and take hold of these truths. And so back then, I really didn't understand my new creation life. And so, you know, I'd walk to the front and I'd dedicate myself. And a few weeks later, I'd rededicate myself. And a few weeks later, I'd re-rededicate myself. And a few weeks later, I'd re-re-re-rededicate myself. On and on and on. And I'd go out and I'd be unsuccessful. Because the old man is not going to truly ever be able to live the Christ life. Oh, it can try to. It can put on appearances. But it's never really going to be able to be successful. And so he says, you know, he says, you know, there are a number of reasons for all this frustration, floundering, and failure. And praise the Lord, there are scriptural answers available to all who need and want them. And he says, first of all, it is utterly futile to expect a believer by means of consecration, surrender, or commitment to step from the ground of substitution, Romans 3 through 5, onto the deeper truths of Romans 8 and 12.1. So he says, you know, commitment isn't going to enable us to move from simply being saved from the guilt and penalty of sin, to really being able to live our lives as living sacrifices unto God. He says there is the all-important area of identification truth in Romans 6 and 7 that cannot be skipped over. 
Now, a few weeks ago, when we started in on the previous chapter, I think it's been three weeks now, um, I read Romans 6, 1 through 14. Critical passage. Pivotal passage in the book of Romans. It is that passage that moves us from substitution, how Christ died for us, to identification that I died with him. Romans 6 is very much about that. In fact, Romans 6, 11. I beseech you there. Uh, no, I'm getting wrong. Uh, therefore, reckon yourselves uh, to be dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. In fact, Romans 6 opens up. How can we who have died to sin, continue in it. And he goes on and he talks about the fact that we died with Christ. It is Christ that took us from what we once were to what we now are. But if we don't understand that, If all we understand is that Christ died for our sins, we are going to spend our Christian life trying to make the old man measure up to the description of the the Christian life. We will spend years trying to do it and failing. He says, this area cannot be skipped over. I would encourage you, spend some time reading Romans 6 and 7. Let these passages really sink home to you. Because they will change everything if you really come to understand them. It says, every hungry-hearted Christian yearns to be fully consecrated... And a condition for effective life and service. So, you know, most Christians do really desire, there's a deep desire in them to, to be used by the Lord. Now, some have given up on that. They've become so burdened down by their failures and inabilities that they're just ready to throw in the towel. But I guarantee you that early on in most Christians' lives, there was this desire that they want the Lord to use them. And he says, from the outset, until hard experience teaches him otherwise, the well-meaning believer thinks that since he has the will to obey God and to and to be what he intends for him, he should attempt to carry it out through personal consecrated effort with his help. He seeks to, str- uh, to struggle forward via the love motive, i.e. he did for me, so I must do for him. There's this idea that, man, God wants me to just do my best for him and he'll help me. 
But it's about me just trying to give him my all. Of course, we'll get to the help chapter much later where, of course, he opens with the statement, God didn't help you get saved. He doesn't intend to help you live the Christian life. It was not a dual effort, us and God, that saved us. It was God. And it's not a dual effort that enables us to live the Christian life. It's God working in and through us. We were saved by faith. And what? The just shall live by faith. That statement that appears four times in Scripture. We are to live by faith. What? Faith in what? Faith in what God has said about the fact that we died with Christ and now are alive with him. And that he is our source of everything. That the life that I now live is the very life of Christ. Rick, what would you say... This is where we come to in the burden, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. In the sense of, I mean, probably all of you, I know both of us have lived, as he uh, shared earlier, in this part of your Christian life where you're trying to do and think. And you try and you try and you just grow so weary. And a time and again, and even in a personal way, seeing these truths brings freedom. Because then you realize, well, you found the answer for one thing. And you realize, yes, I can't do it. Yeah. And that's the most wonderful, hard to come to place. But to be able to say that and know that Christ in Him is everything needed for life and godliness. Yeah. In Him. Not in us. Not in our efforts, not in us trying to seem all spiritual or whatever, but resting and believing and living in who He is. It, it's just an incredible freedom. Yeah. And it takes so much, it just takes the heaviness out of the Christian life. Yeah. Was it meant to be that And again, I mean, I will acknowledge that I had been in ministry at FOA for, for a good number of our years there before I even began to understand this. I will admit that my, most of my early years at FOA, I was trying to basically do it through the old man. And some of the truths I, I taught were accurate. I just didn't fully understand them. You know, I say, I go back and look at notes sometimes and I think, how did I teach that because I didn't understand that? And it was the grace of God. You know, one yeah. I went back into his written notes, we have all of them. In Ephesians, I was just studying through Ephesians. And those notes, I mean, the paper was was discolored. That's how long ago they, these, these notes were written. 
really got this back then. Because it was truths like this. But when I was talking to him about it, he said, Joe, it was just a miracle of God that he enabled me yeah. to speak those truths because I didn't understand. Yeah. That's, that's where sometimes gifting comes in. That if God gifts you to teach, he enables you to do it before you fully understand it, but he never wants you to to be satisfied with that. He wants you to really come to grasp it and understand it and live it out yourself. And so, I mean, it was his grace that early on he enabled me to teach some of these things, but it's been a journey for me to really come to understand them and to appropriate them into my own life. And I would say that my early years at FOA, I was trying to dedicate, consecrate, whatever, you know, my, that old man to serving the Lord. And it was hard. But it started my journey. Because, you know, I think I've shared before, you know, I, I, I came to that place in my Christian life where I said, if Christ paid the price that he paid, salvation has got to be better than what I'm experiencing. For him to have paid the price he paid, and now I'm left on my own to try to live this life that... I can't live. There's got to be more to it than what I understand. And that's where my heart went out to him. And like he says here, it is the needy heart. <coughs> we really aren't going to move forward till we till need brings us to that place. And I did come to that place where God, I I want to understand what you've bought for me. Surely you didn't save me from the guilt and penalty of sin to leave me on my own. And it's been a long journey, but the Lord's taught me along the way. And he's still teaching me. Now, he goes on and he says, The following two thoughts by Andrew Murray will help here. He says, first of all, a superficial acquaintance with God's plan leads us to the view that while justification is God's work by faith in Christ, sanctification or growth is our work to be performed under the influence of the gratitude we feel for the deliverance we've experienced and by the aid of the Holy Spirit. And that's what many believers hold to. It's what I did for a long time. But that's because I had a superficial acquaintance with God's plan. I didn't really understand it. And I can say I came through four years of Bible college and still did not understand this. Yes, sir. Yeah, this is Romans 6.11 verse, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Versus consider yourself dead to sin. Is that merely a realization of, is I have no ability to not sin or sense completely controlling myself? 
Is that, or is it something more than that? What goes through your mind other than that if there's something more than that? Well, to consider myself dead unto sin is, yeah, I can't control, but also to realize that my relationship to sin has changed. Prior to that, I was a slave of sin. I had no option but to sin. Even if I did the right thing outwardly, I didn't have the right attitude. Uh, you know, prior to this, I think to understand dead to sin, we also have to understand the flip side of it, that before we got saved, we were dead to God. And some want to say, well, yeah, I, you know, I've, I had a pastor argue. Well, if you, that's why, you know, God's got to give you faith because if you're dead to him, you can't do anything. And I think, I, I, didn't, I didn't think good on my feet. I should have said, if what you say is true, then you can't sin. Uh, because if you're dead to sin, if dead means you don't have, have any option, <laughs> then, uh, you know... Why can you still sin? I think to understand dead, you have to understand it in a sense that it's often used in middle, mid-eastern culture. You know, if, if a, uh, a Muslim gets saved, his family considers him dead to them. You know, the relationship is severed. It's broken. It's gone. Uh, in an Orthodox Jewish family, if someone uh, accepts Christ, they at times will have a funeral for them. They're dead as far as they're concerned. Now, what does that mean? It means that the relationship has been broken. It's not what it once was. Now, when we were dead to God, we could still... By faith, choose to move towards him and accept his salvation. And, and our relationship was restored. We're dead to sin, which means that we who once were part of sin's realm, that, that uh, relationship has been severed, but that doesn't mean we can't still yield to it. We can't still give in to it. He just doesn't have a right to me. You know, again, I'll say it again. I don't know how many times I've said it, but we continually, basically, in a sense, declare God a liar when we keep saying we're just sinners. We came to the cross as nothing more than a sinner. But I'm not just a sinner. I have a sin nature, which I can let rule me. But I am not a sinner. I am a son of, of the Most High God. I'm a child of His. I'm a, uh, a member, uh, I'm a, uh, a brethren. I'm a, 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 uh, I'm numbered among the saints. I'm His temple. I'm all these things. And as I, I think I said last week, what we often miss out on with salvation is, you know, we talk about being born again. Which means we got a birth certificate to God's family. 
But what we often fail to recognize is that we also got a death certificate to what we were in relationship to Adam, what we were in relationship to the world, what we were in relationship with devil, what we were in relationship with sin. We died to that realm. And if we don't understand that, there's a tension in our lives. I used the illustration last week that, you know, when... Uh, lived in Ireland. Ireland was one of a number of countries where you can have dual citizenship. You could have a U.S. citizenship and an Irish citizenship. And I said dual citizenship works reasonably well as long as the two countries you hold citizenship in are not at war. It would have been hard in World War II to, to be, have a dual citizenship between Germany and Britain. Would have been a bit of stress in there. Yeah. Another question about being a slave to sin. I'm trying to understand it better. Uh, you know, take all of the people that's like, this person puts the Christians to shame because of their actions. And of course, people sometimes do things for their own yeah. good or whatever. But of course, it certainly seems that lots of non believers do things. They die for their child or someone else or whatever else. And they're slaves to sin. Does that mean. Uh, I mean, everything's motivated by uh, alternative motives, or, or can you sort that out for me? I'm trying to sort that out. Yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's uh, the motivation, it, it generally is somewhat self centered. Uh, even if they sacrifice, it's, it's more with a uh, a wrong motivation. It's, and, and, you know, at best, I mean, you look at the Pharisees. They were, oh, they were the epitome of goodness. But Christ defined them as self-righteous. And, he, and so, that self-righteousness was sin. Because it was righteousness that left God out. It wasn't about His righteousness. It was about their righteousness. And yeah, I'll agree with you that there are many unbelievers that put Christians to shame. And some of that is because God is not going to let us successfully live righteously apart from him he will you know put obstacles in the way to keep us from living successfully whereas the unbeliever he's got he's got the world cooperating with him he's got satan cooperating with him he's he's part of that realm we aren't, and, and the enemy is going to do everything he can to make us look bad, and God is going to let us look bad, if that's what it takes to bring us on our knees to him, and to embrace his life. But I've also seen Christians whose lives truly showed forth Christ, and they stood out in this world. And they, you know... Uh, their life was very, very real. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, I'll get there in just a second. But, 
You know, one of the greatest enemies of the gospel is self-righteousness. One of the greatest enemies of, of salvation is, is, is self-righteousness. Who were the ones that had the greatest difficulty accepting Christ? It wasn't the sinners. It was the self-righteous. I think that's something important for parents to keep in mind. Because we can, we can teach our kids how to live self-righteous lives. Which, if anything, becomes an obstacle to them responding to Christ. Our goal is to keep bringing them to Christ. Yes, confront them on the sin in their lives, but not try to train them how to control that themselves, but to use it to show them they need of Christ, their need of Christ. Now, have I answered it at all, Scott, or am I... I mean, if there's more, feel free to ask. I want to... Oh, no, I mean, I think that is a lot of it. It just certainly seems, and I'm not inside somebody else's head. Yeah. It's nice to read their diaries, matter, but it certainly seems like people die, give their life for things outside themselves with no, you know, you know, uh, yeah. benefit for themselves. You know? That's hard to explain um, or understand. Yeah. Well, except that you go back to what uh, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. Uh, he says that God has put eternity in man's heart. Man wants to believe that his life made a difference. And if laying down my life for somebody else means that my time here on earth had some value, the unbeliever will even do that. They, the one thing that they cannot really accept is to have lived their entire life here and their life mean nothing. So, you know, to die for somebody, at least my life meant, meant something. And that's where a lot of the environmentalism comes in, a lot of uh, all these different things going on. It's, I want my time here in this world to have changed something to even if I've just rescued one person's life it means my life had meaning our meaning comes from where we fit into God's plan so I mean I won't argue with you regarding unbelievers and and uh, you know uh, again, their love, uh, a parent's love for his child will at times cause him uh, to uh, make great sacrifices. But that doesn't achieve a level of true righteousness. Uh, and I can't say that everything the unbeliever does is overtly evil, but it doesn't measure up to God's standard of righteousness. And uh, uh, if somebody does a few good things, it doesn't offset the fact that their entire life is basically lived in rebellion against God. And that's where the problem uh, comes in. Now, we're about out of time. I'll have to uh, break it here. Uh, we'll pick up there next week. Uh, but again... 
is so important to go back to this Romans 6. Yes, you know, we're dead to sin. We still can, I mean, we're dead also, like uh, Scott says, in the, in the sense that we really can't, uh, overcome sin. We, and thing, but God isn't going to make us victorious over sin. He's going to set us free from sin. He's going to bring us into another realm. You know, I used to use the illustration that, you know, at the end of the Civil War, legally, every slave went free, legally. Uh, and they didn't have to be stronger than their master to be set free. They just had to live in the realm of their, their freedom. Now, many of them, if you go back in history, many of them, their lives didn't really change. They continued to work for their old master under the title tenant farmer or something, but it really didn't change. And some of it, again, was you can go back in history and not every uh, master did what the government said and all this. I'm just trying to use it in a in a sense of saying that freedom came not by being stronger than the master, but by being set free from the master. We don't have to be stronger than sin. We have to learn to live in a realm that is free from sin. And that's why I've said, you know, for years, I pray in the morning, Lord, help me not to sin, and help me not to think this, or help me not to do that. And that's no longer my prayer. My prayer is, Lord, I want to live like a child of the Most High God. I want to look like a citizen of heaven. I want to be about your business. I want my focus to be in this new realm, not focusing on the old. It's not me trying not to do this, as I said the other week, we're to count ourselves dead to that, but alive unto this. And my prayer is, Lord, I thank you that I died with Christ to what I once was. But now, Lord, I thank you that I have a new life in Christ and I want to live in that realm. And I want others to see Christ in me in that realm. Why? So that they will be attracted to him. Not so that I'll look good. I want him to be seen. And the more... Our focus is in that realm, I think, the more it will come to the forefront and it will be seen. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you now for this time. Lord, we thank you for those who were able to come out this morning. We know there were a lot of obstacles, but Lord, we just thank you for this group. Lord, we know you're at work in each of our hearts and lives. May we just grow in our understanding of what it means to be in Christ. Lord, may our focus on a daily basis be on the life side of the cross. May our desire not be to stop sinning, but to learn to live like the children of God we are. And Lord, may the world see us, uh, see him in us uh, and be drawn to him. First, in his precious name we pray. Amen.